And uh, I got some uh, sad news for you. Um, this is the last weekend we got fruit snacks <laughs> until uh, next year family gathers. So ushers, would you come and bring the fruit snacks? And would you savor each and every one as you eat them? Kids, it's been fun having you with us. And uh, you get to other snacks as you go back to your programs. Uh, next week is uh, we do a fall kickoff, and uh, it's been so great having the family together uh, during this month. And so uh, grab a fruit snack and then pass the basket on down and uh, do us a favor, take the, the wrappers uh, to, the, to the trash afterwards with you. Um, it's been a fun series talking about the followers and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and the implications for how we think, our mindset, for our hearts uh, and how they need to be shaped and how our hands are uh, invested in what God is doing in the nations and the neighborhoods. And, um, and, and we're wrapping up that, that series uh, this, this morning. Uh, in the 1920s, there was a guy uh, named Adolf Dossler. His nickname was Adi, and he had a brother named Rudolph, and they studied a, uh, they started a, a shoe company. Uh, it, it's, it wasn't really getting a lot of traction until they convinced a pretty, uh, pretty fast sprinter uh, to be able to, uh, to wear, their, wear their shoes in the Olympics. And that sprinter was Jesse Owens. Uh, Jesse Owens put on those shoes and ran into the, I think it was the 1936 Olympics and uh, made, uh, made history there. And that shoe company that, started, that was started by Adi and Rudolph uh, really started to just, man, it started to grow. Uh, then World War II happened, and, and actually during World War II, uh, Adi and Rudolph found themselves on sort of different uh, sides of that war and some of their, their thinking of the philosophy of that war and their wives were very passionate about their opinion on uh, what was happening in Germany and there was a rift in that family and uh, in 1948 when, the, when, when industry re- began again in Germany uh, those two guys went separate ways in fact there was a pretty ugly separation Adi kept his shoe company changed the name to Adi Das taking his name and taking the first uh, uh, three letters of his last name uh, created the company Adidas and then Rudolph went and in spite started another company called Puma. And, um, and there in Germany in those, in those early days of, uh, after the war in the 50s and 60s, uh, man, if you were a Puma fan, you did not wear Adidas uh, because you were you really were choosing some ideological sides by what shoes you wore. Um, and uh, and you know, today, you may not be able to relate to that because you don't know all that history and there's a whole lot of more shoe brands out there. Um, but man, I remember as a kid, because I was an Adidas kid, and I remember saving up money to get a pair of Adidas. They're white, they had these blue stripes. They were very cool. I loved to watch myself run by looking down at them as I ran. Uh, that ended in some poor collisions. And, uh, and, and, but it, I was an Adidas kid. And, you know, that, that sort of passion, uh, it, it, well, remember 1980s, the Pepsi Challenge? When Pepsi was doing this marketing campaign, having people test Pepsi, uh, taste uh, Pepsi or another unidentified cola, and which was Coke, and uh, and uh, people were starting to choose Pepsi. Pe- Coke got a little bit nervous, and so they they changed their recipe. They came out with new Coke, and all the Coke fans went ballistic. Uh, Coke execs say that when they they used to travel with their briefcases with the Coke uh, luggage tag on there and their shirt that had the logo, and they would get accosted on the flights, and so they took ripped off their luggage tags and stopped wearing their Coke shirts because people were passionate about the real thing, and you messed with the real thing. And so they came out with classic Coke, which was a nice comeback. And even today, there are some of you in this room that would dare not have a Pepsi product in your fridge. 
Uh, or you would dare not have a Coke product in your fridge because you're a Coke person or a Pepsi person. In fact, raise your hand if you would say, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Coke person. Uh, that, that's who I am, okay? Quite a few of you. How many are, how many are Pepsi people? Okay, wow, right, right down the middle, huh? See how that is? How many just don't care? Whatever's on sale, that's what I'm buying, all right, okay? You know, but we get pretty passionate about, you know, is it Coke or Pepsi? That's the one we, we want. Remember these two guys? I'm a Mac, I'm a PC. Remember that ad campaign? Um, the Mac guy was sort of the pre-hipster movement. I mean, he was cool, he was smooth, uh, and he represented Macs. And then uh, you've got the PC guy in the, three, in the suit there. Uh, he, he sort of repre- represents the, the, the stiff, sort of the business uh, approach to, to computing. And, uh, and they would have this, this rivalry going back and forth. In fact, Mac users, Apple, people who use Apple products are like evangelists. I mean, they're out there trying to convert people and tell them that, you know, Mac is the new way. This is, this is I mean, we, you can be artistic. You can just be so, uh, you know, innovative. And, uh, and, and this, this is the new way of computing. And they're just promoting their products. And PC users go, yeah, but our computers actually get work done. And they fire back at the, at the Mac users, right? So how, how many Mac users in the house? Yeah, see, they're, they're, the evangelism's already starting. Uh, how, how, many, how many PC users in the house? All right, wow, okay. Some of you will catch up eventually to the, you know. We're passionate about, our, about, about you know, our shoes, our drinks, our computers. And I just want you to know, at the beginning of Family Gathers, right here on this platform, Susan Garlinger spoke, and she spoke heresy. All right? <laughs> She said something about her family wanting to choose a team to root for and that her family had decided on rooting and cheering for the Beavers. All right? Yeah. And so last night, I just couldn't even look her in the eye. She was sitting right over here. I, just, I couldn't even, as I was preaching, just had to walk over here like this. And I, I just spoke two words to Susan Garlinger. Rose Bowl. That's all I got to say about that, okay? Just Rose Bowl. We're pretty passionate. We're pretty passionate about our sports teams. We're pretty passionate about the things that we think are the best products. You know, whatever they are, we, we, we have our preferences. And guess what? Our preferences for life, our preferences in how we do life isn't confined to out there. Because when we come together here on a weekend, we bring with us our passions and our preferences. We, we believe that there is a, uh, because of how we connect with God, that there is a preferred way to connect with him. That, that you know, there is a certain way that, that I connect with God, and, uh, and that's the right way. And, uh, and we don't fudge on that. By, by the way, I'm not, I'm not talking about the non-negotiables of the faith here, okay? We, we believe that, uh, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We believe that he offered his life as a substitutionary sacrifice on our, be- our behalf. We believe in the atonement. We believe in the resurrection, the ascension. We believe in the virgin birth. We believe that the scriptures are authoritative and that we come under the word. We, we, we listen to the word and we adjust our life to the word. We don't adjust the word to our lives. We have core convictions. We have non-negotiables of the faith. But the reality is, is that sometimes our personal preferences get a little bit fuzzy and blurred and we view them as non-negotiables. We say, no, this is the way that we approach God. 
This is the right way. I mean, and in fact, we come to church, we, you know, we, we sometimes feel this clash. I mean, is it hymns or is it courses? Is it loud or is it quiet? When we take communion, do we do, we do it in trays or do we dip the bread in the cup? I mean, jeans or dockers? You know, ties or no ties? We, 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 we have our different preferences for, I mean, creeds or movie clips, liturgy or, 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 or just reading from the scriptures. We, we have all kinds of ideas of what the right way is to approach God. Years ago, when I was in college, we were having a sort of a worship and prayer time, and uh, we were in this sort of large room, and uh, we had been singing, and uh, we, were, we, were, we were now going to, we were now praying, and I grew up in this tradition that when, when you're in a group and someone is praying, that everyone else is quiet. Um, and you, there was the occasional like, hmm, mm-hmm, that, that was okay, permissible, okay? You can, you can kind of give, you know, when I'm around pastors, I call it the pastoral, hmm, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm. That's okay, that's totally okay. And so we were in this prayer meeting, and, um, and there's this guy named Bobby. He's behind me, and you know, like every 10 seconds as someone's praying, Bobby's behind me. He's going, yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Jesus. Oh, yes, Jesus. Yo, may it be so, Jesus. And inside of me, man, like the RPMs of my emotions are revving up, Okay. And if he says, yes, Jesus, one more time, I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to send him to Jesus. Because I'm, this, this is really troubling me, because this is not how you pray. I know the right way to pray. It's the way I learned, okay? And so Bobby needs to do it the way I do it. I mean, we've all done it. We all have our preferences, and we have our ways that we, we connect best with God. Here's a question for us. I mean, we are, we are a church... That's been around for 90 years. We have a long history together. How is a church that's 90 years old, how is a church that's 90 years old, that's full of a lot of people from different backgrounds, different church backgrounds, different life back, family backgrounds, socioeconomic uh, diversity we have uh, in in this place, different races. How, How does a church with, with so many different personalities, have been around for so long, how do we gather on a weekend and in love and unity be of one heart and of one mind as we worship God? And how do we do that and yet realize that, that probably in this room there's a lot of different ways that we feel like this is the way we connect with God? That's the question I want to attempt to answer today. And, uh, and, and we're going to do it by starting first in 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, and I want to read you a story. Um, and first of all, answer that question by saying, here's n- how it doesn't happen. All right, here's how it doesn't happen. It's on page 496 in your pew Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, um, that would be a great um, place to, to go. Um, and uh, would you stand as I read uh, God's word together, follow along. I'm actually going to begin in verse 12. Um, I know that the bulletin says verse 16, the slide says verse 16. I want to back it up a bit, uh, begin in verse 12, uh, and hear the word of the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. Then King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. 
So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. Let me just hit the pause button there uh, and make a comment. Um, the priestly garment, uh, in some of your translations, it says a linen ephod, which would have been what the priests wore. Sometimes it's referred to as the undergarments. Um, and so when, and you might have a little asterisk in your Bible by that, that word. And so it's, it's sort of the undergarment uh, of, of what someone would wear. So let's pick it up again in verse 15. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices... David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. Then he gave to every Israelite, man and woman in the crowd, a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. When David returned home to bless his own family, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. Let me hit the pause button again here, okay? What you're about to witness is a classic marital spat, all right? This one happens to be about worship. So let's pick it up again. So uh, David returns home. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. Peacemaker principles kind of set to the side there. Uh, he appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrated before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. All right, what is that story all about? I mean, what is that story doing in our Bibles? What's the point? Because here's what, what some people would say. Here's the point of the story. Worship, worship is about leaping and dancing and trumpets and shouting and sacrifices, and we need to just get out there and in our undergarments just totally humiliate ourselves, and that's the way you worship. And I pray that's not it, because I just, it's, uh, it's a little bit you know, awkward to be thinking about that. that. But sometimes that's what people say. They look at that thing, this is how worship happens. You need to get out there, and you need to leap, and not just leap with just a little toe tap, like, okay, uh, that was my leap, or a little dance. You know, it's with all your might, because that's how David did it. Some people might look at that story and say, that's the point of that story. And, and I would say, well, you know, sometimes worship looks like that, but I don't believe that's the point of the story. See, David, David is bringing the ark of the Lord, the presence of God, into the city of Jerusalem. And every six steps, he's, he's sacrificing animals. 
and, uh, and he's leaping and dancing, yes, and his linen ephod is, is his undergarments, and as he's pulling into the city, his wife looks down from the window, notice her position, she's up in the window looking down, she's, she's not in the procession, and she's looking down and she sees David and she's filled with contempt. And so when David comes home after a great day of work, coming home excited about all that God has done, what he meets sort of surprises him because his wife says to him, you did it all wrong. I mean, how distinguished the king looked today. Wow. Out there dancing in your depends or whatever you were wearing out there. That was really, that was really awesome. Way to humiliate yourself in front of all the serving girls, being vulgar. And David, you know, shoots back. Who, whose family is now in, in, in royalty? Oh, yeah, your, your dad's not there anymore. And this little spat takes place over worship. What's this story about? I believe that this story is about, about worship about, is about us going low and God being lifted high. That worship is about, about human beings, uh, men and women, boys and girls, going low before God and lifting God high. Michael stays in her window looking down and saying, you went too low, David. And what's David's response? You thought I went low? I'm going lower still. And then there's this funny little epitaph that's attached to the end of that story. And Michael remained childless the rest of her life. She was barren. I think that what, what, what God, by the Spirit of God, the, the Spirit of God is saying is that that, that thinking is a, is, a, is, a, is a barren thinking. This idea that, that, we, that we stay somewhere here and God's a little bit higher than us and that worship is all about going low and lifting God high. Our mission statement here at Sam Lyons Church begins with we exist to exalt Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, to lift him high, which means we go low. That's what this story is about. It's not about the how worship happens it's about the heart of worship. William Temple defines worship uh, th this way. Uh, Temple says, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, nourishment of mind by his truth, purifying of imagination by his beauty, opening of the heart to his love and submission of will to his purpose. All this gathered up in adoration is the greatest of expressions of which we are capable. Uh, a, a spiritual mentor of mine in the name of uh, Sundar Christian uh, puts it in a shorter form, a, des uh, a definition of worship. Uh, Sundar uh, says this. He says, worship is a response to divine revelation. Whatever God chooses to show of himself, our response is worship. However God reveals himself, he is lifted high and we go low. That's worship. But the fact of the matter is, that each and every one of us have probably a, a preferred way of how worship happens. Uh, Gordon MacDonald, in his book, Forging a Real World Faith, uh, talks about how th this is true, that really there are, there are likely at least six worship instincts, six ways that people um, connect with God. And in those six ways, probably two, maybe three of them are the preferred path, but there's typically one primary way that people want to connect with God. 
But the mistake we make is that this, this lowest level of thinking is the way I connect with God is the way everyone else should connect with God. So here's what I want to do today. I want to quickly walk through these six worship instincts that McDonald brings up in his book, and I want you to pay close attention to how I define them, and I want you to also start thinking about, hey, I wonder which one of these is my primary way in which I connect with God. Okay, this, yep, that's, that's how I am most comfortable in worshiping God and responding to how he reveals himself to me. And then at the end, we're going to have a little bit of fun. We'll do some, uh, we'll do some live polling, and we'll find out in this room today uh, which instinct is, is, uh, is the primary uh, worship instinct um, that's represented by the, who's in this uh, worship center today. So are you tracking with me? Pay attention. I'm going to walk through all six fairly quickly. And then I want you, what I want you to do is I know there's probably two or three that you're going to say, yep, that's me. But I want you to hone it down to one. Which, what's my primary way that I connect with God? The first one McDonald talks about is the aesthetic. And worship is about majesty. The aesthetic beauty and order and tradition and artistry is very important. They love to worship in buildings that have been architecturally designed for beauty and order. They love to worship um, uh, with a connection to the past. Uh, what I mean by that is by singing songs that have been, been, been tested by time. Uh, singing songs that, uh, uh, hymns that have been sung for hundreds of years perhaps. And, and when it comes to prayer, they feel most comfortable with a prayer book. When someone says they're just praying from the heart, that makes them a little bit nervous. And worship is about majesty. It's about, about God being lifted high. It's about his supremacy. I mean, a favorite Bible verse might be, uh, a Bible passage might be Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is, is caught up into heaven, and he sees the throne room, and the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim are, are all there, and they're shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and Isaiah is just coming apart at the seams. He's undone. Because he knows he's a, he's, a, he's, he's a man who's unclean and he's from a people that are unclean. And, and to have that whole majestic scene of Revelation chapter 1 where, where John falls down dead when he sees Jesus. I mean, it's about majesty. And when you're in, when you're in the presence of majesty, it's, it's, about, it's about being in awe and reverence and wonder and being connected to the people of the past and, and, and liturgy. And I mean, that's, that's the aesthetic. The second one is the experiential. And worship is about joy. See, the, the experiential person is, is, Isaiah 6 is great, but the experiential is like, look, Jesus, do you get this? Jesus went to the cross. He took all of our sin on us, uh, 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 upon himself, from us, and, uh, and, and, he, and now we're alive, now we're set free. Shouldn't someone be happy about that? I mean, doesn't, doesn't Psalm 100 verse 4 say, we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise? I mean, some of you who are experiential in the room, if you walked into a church service where the aesthetic instinct was dominant, you would look around and go, this place is dead. These people are so, like, non-emotive. In fact, we were singing those songs uh, earlier, and we were singing, like, at Calvary, and the aesthetic was like, oh, yeah, we used to sing this song in church. Oh, I love that hymn. So the words were good, and the experiential is going, this is killing me. It's, it's, you know, and you're thinking, do you see these words? Someone should be clapping, clapping. You should be stomping your feet. This is such great news because worship is about joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Come on, people. 
Be joyful. That's the experiential instinct. The third one uh, is the, uh, the activist. Worship is about doing. I mean, this is great. We should do this. But this is sort of like a holy huddle. This is where we call the plays. Out there... That's where things happen. Out there, people are hurting. Out there, people, uh, people are homeless. Out there, uh, people need our compassion. They need to, to, to experience the mercy of Christ. And we got to go do it. I mean, you'll hear the word vision a lot. In fact, when you listen to people like this, you might even get tired when you're listening to them because it's about doing. They'll, they'll say things like, you know, Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says, you know, go into all the world. As you're going into all the world, make disciples. Or they'll quote James chapter 1, uh, verse, verse 22. Don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers. Or verse 27, true religion is this, to care for widows and orphans. Come on, people, let's go do something. This is great, but out there, that's where worship happens. That's the activist. And the fourth one, McDonald points out, is the contemplative. And worship is about listening. The contemplative will say to you, look, we can, we can swim through the surface waters of our relationship with Christ. But what we need to do is dive deep and drink from the deep aquifers of the Spirit which are fed by the streams of God. And they will say things like, there are, there are doctrines about God that words cannot convey. They will talk about prayer being a two-way conversation. And a favorite verse for them will be Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Or in the, in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, and in the Gospels where it says, he who has an ear, he or she who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. For the contemplative, worship is all about listening. Leave the hurriedness and the busyness of life behind. Go to silence and solitude. And they're perfectly comfortable with silence and solitude. And the activist is going, you are killing me again. What, what is going on here? We gotta be doing something. The experientialist is going, come on, this is like a, this is like a cry fest. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And the aesthetic is like, where, where's the prayer book? We, know we, we, we need to connect with God through the past. And, and you can start seeing how some of these worship instincts will clash with each other. And then you have the fifth one. The fifth one's the student. Worship is about truth. McDonald says in his book that without this worship instinct, he, he says that if, if you don't have people in your church who have this worship instinct, the, the local church disintegrates. Because one of the gifts that the student gives to us is a love for the word of God. A Bible study is an important part of their worship. Finding God in the word of God and the, and the word of God revealed through scripture. This is beautiful. And when the student hears about the contemplative saying that there are words that cannot convey doctrines about God, the student goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Where's that in the word of God? That, that makes me nervous. I mean, because, you know, 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy 3.16 says the word of God is God-breathed. The scriptures are God-breathed, and they're useful for all these things. 
Amen. We, we hold up the word of God high. And then in also in 1 Timothy, it says, watch your doctrine. Pay attention to doctrine. It's important. So the, the one with the, stu- the student instinct is got a high focus on truth. And the last one that McDonald points out is the relational. Worship is all about community. I mean, Matthew 18, verse 19 says, where two or three are gathered in my name, my name there I am also. Acts 2 is a beautiful picture of the church together, caring for one another, caring for the poor, submitting to the, to the teaching of the apostles, celebrating communion together, breaking of bread. And it's about being together. If I go somewhere and I have a connection with God, I want to bring as many people as possible with me so they can experience it as well. I don't want to do this alone. I, I, I want as many people. In fact, I don't, I don't just want people in the same room together. I want to hear people's stories. I want to know how God's moving. I want to hear testimonies. I want to, buy, I want to swim in people's stories and, and hear what God's doing. Worship is about community. And if you look at those and start looking at maybe a, uh, or two or three of those that perhaps like, yeah, that, that's, that's how I connect with God. Look at that list now, and I, I want you to think about what's, if you had to choose one, what would you say is your primary way that you connect with God? And here's what we're going to do, okay? As you select that primary way that you're going to connect with God, we're just going to do a, just a little live poll here. And, uh, and, and so what you're going to do is with your cell phones, I'm sure it's an Apple iPhone, but with your, with your cell phones, uh, uh, you're going you're gonna to text one of these words that represents that worship instinct to 22333. And by the way, they're all named that, that, that worship instinct except the student. You're going to have to put pupil in. For whatever reason, that, that keyword was already taken. So as you think about those worship instincts, as you've been paying attention on this, which one is your primary worship instinct? Just send it in there. The, the, the phone number is 22333. And, uh, and then just put, you know, put aesthetic... You have to spell it right, which is a challenge, uh, some of these words. Experiential, activist, contemplative, pupil, or relational. That's the, that's the key word. And, uh, and as you're doing that, here, here's a great story. We send out surveys to, to people who visit our church. And um, uh, about three weeks ago, we, we got some of those surveys back, and we read them. We ask questions like, you know, how can we serve you better? Um, and uh, we had some comments in some of those surveys. And someone wrote on that survey, um, man, I love that church service. The music was, was amazing. It was so contemporary and so modern. I just connected with God. It was beautiful. And you flip the page, you look at the next survey, and the next person wrote, man, every song you sang was at least 10 years old. Nobody young is going to come to your church. It's the same weekend. It's the same weekend. And, and why? Because we have in our minds the right way to worship God. And I want to suggest to you, that's barren thinking. Because we have some built-in sort of uh, approaches that we feel most comfortable in how we connect with God. And we get to do that six days a week. But when we join together as the family of God, the larger family of God, guess what happens? Sometimes, sometimes it isn't, the service isn't happening the way that you would like to connect with God. I mean, look at this. Got over 200 responses. And this is the first, the first service, the contemplative has been the highest. And, and a lot of other services, actually the experiential was, was higher. And uh, on, on the student side, that's, that's, that's pretty close. In fact, aesthetic in the other services has been uh, a bit higher. 
And, um, but what you're seeing here as you look at these, these results come in is that, you know, we're, we're pretty much all over the map. You see that picture? I mean, we got people, we got over 200, we got 255 people who have responded and um, you can just see the bars continue to move there. We, we all connect with God in a variety of ways. Just let that, keep that, let, let that going, Ron. Um, because let's go back to our question as this picture continues to develop in front of us. Here's the question. How does a church that's 90 years old, how does a church that's been around for 90 years that has a lot of traditions and a rich heritage filled with a lot of people from, you know, different generations, different backgrounds, social and economic backgrounds that differ, blue collar, white collar, beaver fans, duck fans. I mean, we, we've, we've, we've got a lot of, I mean, seriously, even the things that we do for fun, we're passionate about. Our, our different backgrounds in church, how do we in love and unity, stay glued to each other as we worship God, as we respond to him as he reveals himself to us. How do we worship him with one heart and one mind? And, don't, and how do we avoid falling into the trap, this barren thinking of, no, no, this is the right way to do it. This is how you worship. Let me tell you how you connect with God. How do we avoid blurring the lines of preference with non-negotiables? Well, the answer to that question is really very simple. It's preferring one another above ourselves. It's saying, you know, I'd rather leap and dance, but there's, a, there's about 28% of this group here that, you know, they, they love silence. For the sake of the body, then I'm, I'm okay with that. Because there's going to be a weekend where I get to stomp my foot and clap and express joy. I mean, think about it. We could start a church today. And, and in one, we could embody one of those instincts. We could, just, we could all be students. Or we could all be aesthetics. But isn't there something beautiful about people from varied backgrounds and different preferences coming together and saying, yeah, it's not my favorite way to hear a sermon with live pulling on a screen. You know, but I, I'm, I love this place. I love these people. I love my God. So I'm going to go low. I'm going to lift God high. That's worship. And how we do it is by preferring one another above ourselves. And as we do that, get this, John 17 says, as we love one another, which is a byproduct, preferring one another above ourselves, as we love one another, the world takes notice and says, man, that's unusual. And let's face it, we live in a very polarized world. I mean, if you think one way, you're over there because we think this way. Worship is all about going low and God going high. And we certainly have our, our worship instincts, 
but I believe it puts a smile on God's face when he sees the beauty of the body of Christ coming together with, with their own preferences, but worshiping together and saying, I love this community, this is family, and I love God. So let's worship. Let's pray together. So Lord, I thank you for the many people that are represented by this body of Christ who love to connect with you. They love to connect with you, Lord. And they do it in a variety of ways. Lord, I want to be part of a family that's just, <laughs> where I am enriched by the person I'm worshiping next to. We don't want to be a, a church that looks down from our window and says that's the wrong way to do it. We want to walk with our husbands. We want to walk with our wives. We want to worship with our kids. We want to lift you high. And we want to do it because of our love for people and because of our great love for you. Forgive us for those moments where we've kind of submerged that lowest level of thinking. I know I've done that. Cleanse us, restore us, and be pleased as you are lifted high. It's in your name we pray. Amen.